Chapter 9b of The Sheikh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. The Sheikh by E. M. Hull. Chapter 9b. The charm of the desert took hold of me then, and has never left me since. But I had to return to my medical studies. I left Ahmed absorbed in his life, and happier than I had ever seen him in Paris. He was nineteen then, and when he was twenty-one, my father had the unpleasant task of carrying out Lady Glencarroll's dying wishes. He wrote to Lord Glencarroll, asking him to come to Paris on business connected with his late wife, and during the course of a very painful interview, put the whole facts before him. With the letter that the poor girl had written to her husband, with the wedding ring and the locket, together with the sketch that my father had made of her, the proofs of the genuineness of the whole affair were conclusive. Glen Carroll broke down completely. He admitted that his wife had every justification for leaving him. He spared himself nothing. He referred quite frankly to the curse of which he had been the slave, and which had made him irresponsible for his actions when he was under its influence. He had never known himself what had happened that terrible night, but the tragedy of his wife's disappearance had cured him. He had made every effort to find her, and it was many years before he gave up all hope. He mourned her bitterly and worshipped her memory. It was impossible not to pity him, for he had expiated his fault with agony that few men can have experienced. The thought that he had a son, and that son her child, almost overwhelmed him. He had ardently desired an heir, and, thinking himself childless, the fact that his title and his old name, of which he was very proud, would die with him, had been a great grief. His happiness in the knowledge of Ahmed's existence was pathetic. He was consumed with impatience for his son's arrival. Nothing had been said to Ahmed in case Lord Glencarroll should prove difficult to convince and thereby complicate matters, but his ready acceptance of the affair and his eagerness to see his son made further delay unnecessary, and my father sent for Ahmed. The old sheikh let him go in ignorance of what was coming. He had always dreaded the time when his adopted son would have to be told of his real parentage, fearful of losing him, jealous of sharing his affection, and resenting anybody's claim to him over his own. And so, with the only instance he ever gave of want of moral courage, he sent Ahmed to Paris with no explanation, and left to my father the task of breaking to him the news. I shall never forget that day. It had been arranged that Ahmed should be told first, and that afterwards father and son should meet. Ahmed arrived in the morning in time for déjeuner, and afterwards we went to my father's study, and there he told him the whole story as gently and as carefully as he could. Ahmed was standing by the window. He never said a word the whole time my father was speaking, and when he finished, he stood quite still for a few moments, his face almost gray under the deep tan, his eyes fixed passionately on my father's, 
and then his fiendish temper broke out suddenly. It was a terrible scene. He cursed his father in a steady stream of mingled Arabic and French blasphemy that made one's blood run cold. He cursed all English people impartially. He cursed my father because he had dared to send him to England. He cursed me because I had been a party to the affair. The only person whom he spared was the sheikh, who, after all, was as much implicated as we were, but he never once mentioned him. He refused to see his father, refused to recognize that he was his father, and he left the house that afternoon and Paris that night, going straight back to the desert, taking with him Gaston, who had arranged some time before to enter his service as soon as his time in the cavalry was up. A letter that Lord Glencarroll wrote to him, addressed to Viscount Carroll, which is, of course, his courtesy title, begging for at least an interview, and which he gave to us to forward, was returned unopened, and scrawled across the envelope, In Kanu, Ahmed bin Hassan. And since that day his hatred of the English had been a monomania, and he has never spoken a word of English. Later on, when we used to travel together, his obvious avoidance of English people was at times both awkward and embarrassing, and I have often had to go through the farce of translating into French or Arabic remarks made to him by English fellow-travellers, that is, when he condescended to notice the remarks, which was not often. From the day he learned the truth about himself for two years, we saw nothing of him. Then the old sheikh asked us to visit him. We went with some misgivings as to what Ahmed's reception of us would be, but he met us as if nothing had happened. He ignored the whole episode and has never referred to it. It is a closed incident. The sheikh warned us that Ahmed had told him that any reference to it would mean the breaking off of all relations with us. But Ahmed himself had changed indescribably. All the lovable qualities that had made him so popular in Paris were gone, and he had become the cruel, merciless man he has been ever since. The only love left in him was given to his adopted father, whom he worshipped. Later I was allowed back on the old footing, and he has always been good to Gaston, but with those three exceptions he has spared nobody and nothing. He is my friend, I love him, and I am not telling you more than you know already. Saint Hubert broke off and looked anxiously at Diana, but she did not move or meet his gaze. She was sitting with her hands still clasped over the shakes, and the other one shading her face, and the vicomte went on speaking. It is so easy to judge, so difficult to understand another person's temptations. Ahmed's position has always been a curious one. He has had unique temptations with always the means of gratifying them. There was a longer pause, but still Diana did not move or speak. The curse of Ishmael had taken hold of me by then, and I wandered continually. Sometimes Ahmed came with me. We have shot big game together in most parts of the globe. A few times he stayed with us in Paris, but never for long. He always wearied to get back to the desert. Five years ago the old sheikh died. 
He was an exceptionally strong man, and should have lived for years, but for an accident which crippled him hopelessly, and from which he died a few months afterwards. Ahmed's devotion during his illness was wonderful. He never left him, and since he succeeded to the leadership of the tribe, he has lived continuously amongst his people, absorbed in them and his horses, carrying on the traditions handed down to him by his predecessor, and devoting his life to the tribe. They are like children, excitable, passionate, and headstrong, and he has never dared to risk leaving them alone too long, particularly with the menace of Ibrahim Omer always in the background. He has never been able to seek relaxation further afield than Algiers or Oran. Saint-Hubert stopped abruptly, cursing himself for a tactless fool. She could not fail to realize the significance of those visits to the gay, vicious little towns. The inference was obvious. His thoughtless words would only add to her misery. Her sensitive mind would shrink from the contamination they implied. If Ahmed was going to die, she would be desolate enough without forcing on her knowledge the unworthiness of the man she loved. He pushed his chair back impatiently and went to the open doorway. He felt that she wanted to be alone. She watched him go, then slipped to her knees beside the couch. She had realized the meaning of Raoul's carelessly uttered words, and they had hurt her poignantly, but it was no new sorrow. He had told her himself months ago, callously, brutally, sparing her nothing, extenuating nothing. She pressed her cheek against the hand she was holding. She did not blame him. She could only love him, no matter what his life had been. It was Ahmed, as he was. She loved. His faults, his vices were as much a part of him as his superb physique and the alternating moods that had been so hard to meet. She had never known him otherwise. He seemed to stand alone, outside the prescribed conventions that applied to ordinary men. The standards of common usage did not appear compatible with a wild desert man who was his own law and followed only his own precedent, defiant of social essentials and scornful of criticism. The proud, fierce nature and passionate temper that he had inherited the position of despotic leadership in which he had been reared, the adulation of his followers, and the savage life in the desert, free from all restraint, had combined to produce the haughty unconventionalism that would not submit to the ordinary rules of life. She could not think of him as an Englishman. The mere accident of his parentage was a factor that weighed nothing. He was and always would be an Arab of the wilderness. If he lived, he must live. He could not go out like that. His magnificent strength and fearless courage, extinguished by a treacherous blow that had not dared to meet him face to face, in spite of the overwhelming numbers, but had struck him down from behind, a coward stroke. He must live even if his life meant death to her hopes of happiness. That was nothing compared with his life. She loved him well enough to sacrifice 
anything for him. If he only lived, she could bear even to be put out of his life. It was only he that mattered. His life was everything. He was so young, so strong, so made to live. He had so much to live for. He was essential to his people. They needed him. If she could only die for him. In the days when the world was young, the gods were kind. They listened to the prayers of hapless lovers and accepted the life that was offered in place of the beloved whose life was claimed. If God would but listen to her now, if he would but accept her life in exchange for his, if, if, her fingers crept up lightly across his breast, fearful lest even their tender touch should injure his battered body, and she looked long and earnestly at him. His crisp brown hair was hidden by the bandages that, dead white against his tanned face, swathed his bruised head. His closed eyes, with the thick dark lashes curling on his cheek, hiding the usual fierce expression that gleamed in them, and the relaxation of the hard lines of his face made him look singularly young. That youthful look had been noticeable often when he was asleep, and she had watched it wondering what Ahmed the boy had been like before he grew into the merciless man at whose hands she had suffered so much. And now the knowledge of his boyhood seemed to make him even dearer than he had been before. What sort of man would he have been if the little dark-eyed mother had lived to sway him with her gentleness? Poor little mother, helpless and fragile, yet strong enough to save her boy from the danger that she feared for him, but paying the price of that strength with her life, content that her child was safe. Diana thought of her own mother, dying in the arms of a husband who adored her, and then of the little Spanish girl slipping away from life, a stranger in a strange land, her heart crying out for the husband whom she still loved, turning in ignorance of his love for consolation in the agony of death to the lover she had denied, and seeking comfort in his arms. A sudden jealousy of the two dead women shook her. They had been loved. Why could not she be loved? Wherein did she fail that he would not love her? Other men had loved her, and his love was all she longed for in the world to feel his arms around her only once with love in their touch, to see his passionate eyes kindle only once with the light she prayed for. She drew a long, sobbing breath. Ahmed, mon bel Arab, she murmured yearningly. She rose to her feet. She was afraid of breaking down, of giving way to the fear and anxiety that racked her, she turned instinctively to the help and sympathy that offered, and went to Saint-Hubert, joining him under the awning. Usually at night the vicinity of the sheikh's tent was avoided by the tribesmen. Even the sentry on guard was posted at some little distance. Kopec, curled up outside the doorway, kept ample watch. But tonight the open space was swarming with men, some squatting on the ground in circles, Others clustered together in earnest conversation, and far off through the palm trees she caught an occasional glimpse of mounted men, 
Yusuf and the headman acting under him were taking no risks. There was to be no chance of a surprise attack. You must be very tired, Raoul, she said, slipping her hand through his arm, for her need was almost as much for physical as mental support. The frank touch of her hand sent a quiver through him, but he suppressed it and laid his own hand over her cold fingers. I must not think of that yet. Later on, perhaps, I can rest a little. Henri can watch. He is almost as good a doctor as I am. The incomparable Henri. Ahmed and I have always quarreled over the respective merits of our servants. He felt her hand tighten on his arm at the mention of the sheikh's name, and heard the smothered sigh that she choked back. They stood in silence for a while, watching the shifting groups of tribesmen. A little knot of low-voiced men near them opened up, and one of their number came to Saint-Hubert with an inquiry. The men are restless, Raoul said when the Arab had gone back to his fellows, with all the consolation the vicomte could give him. Their devotion is very strong. Ahmed is a god to them. Their anxiety takes them in a variety of ways. Yusuf, who has been occupied with his duties most of the day, has turned to religion for the first time in his life. He has gone to say his prayers with the pious Abdul, as he thinks that Allah is more likely to listen if his petitions go heavenward in company with the holy man's. Diana's thoughts strayed back to the story that Saint-Hubert had told her. Does Lord Lincarroll know that you see Ahmed? she asked. Oh, yes. He and my father became great friends. He often stays with us in Paris. We are a link between him and Ahmed. He is always hungry for any news of him and still clings to the hope that one day he will relent. He has never made any further effort to open up relations with him because he knows it would be useless. If there is to be any rapprochement between them, it must come from Ahmed. They have almost met accidentally once or twice, and Glen Carroll has once seen him. It was at the opera. He was staying in Paris for some months and had a box. I had gone across from our own box on the other side of the house to speak to him. There were several people with him. I was standing beside him, talking. Ahmed had just come into our box opposite and was standing right in the front, looking over the theatre. Something had annoyed him, and he was scowling. The likeness was unmistakable. Glen Carroll gave a kind of groan and staggered back against me. Good God, who is that? he said, and I don't think he knew he was speaking out loud. A man next him looked in the direction he was looking and laughed. That's the Saint-Hubert's wild man of the desert. Looks fierce, doesn't he? The women call him Le Bel Arab. He certainly wears European clothes with better grace than most natives. He is said to have a peculiar hatred of the English, so you'd better give him a wide berth, Glen Carroll, if you don't want to be bowstringed or have your throat cut or whatever fancy form of death the fellow cultivates in his native habitat. Raoul can tell you all about him. There was not any need for me to tell him. 
Fortunately, the opera began and the lights went down, and I persuaded him to go away before the thing was over. Diana gave a little shiver. She felt a great sympathy coming over her for the lonely old man, hoping against hope for the impossible, that she had not felt earlier in the evening. He, too, was wearing his heart out against the inflexible will of Ahmed ben Hassan. She shivered again and turned back into the tent with Saint-Hubert. They halted by the couch and stood for a long time in silence. Then Diana slowly raised her head and looked up into Raoul's face, and he read the agonized question in her eyes. I don't know, he said gently. All things are with Allah. End of chapter 9b